it's so uh, great to be worshipping God together uh, right across our city, wherever you're watching from this morning. Uh, my name is Matt. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor here at Liberty Church. Thank you so much for tuning in today, uh, particularly if this is your first time uh, ever with us, even if it is online, then we're really grateful that you are uh, watching this stream today and we pray that God will speak to you and work in your heart today. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to find uh, the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, which will be towards the back of your Bible, or there's lots of Bible apps you could download for your phone, or if you just search on Google, you'll find plenty of Bibles on there. Um, and if you want to find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, in a moment or two, Michiel is going to uh, uh, read the scripture to us. Uh, before we do that, I'm just going to quickly recommend a book. This book is called A Better Story, uh, God, Sex and Human Flourishing by Glyn Harrison. Uh, we can talk a little bit about this issue in a moment or two, but if you want to go a bit deeper and find out what Christians believe about sex and why it's important, and uh, just a really helpful, uplifting book of encouragement to help you understand how to navigate through what can sometimes be a very tricky, difficult subject, subject particularly in our city, then this book, A Better Story by Glyn Harrison, I would very much recommend that to you. Okay, we are going to watch... Michiel now read the scripture to us. Good morning. Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, thank you so much to Michiel. I don't know how he managed to get so quickly from the stage behind me to his living room like that. That was really remarkable. He is a very gifted man. Okay, then let's crack on. When it comes to the issue of sex, this is obviously... Uh, uh, Sometimes a controversial subject. Uh, for Christians, it can be a subject that often we prefer not to talk about. That can bring lots of feelings of shame or guilt or something we just think, well, Christians aren't really supposed to talk about that. We'll just leave that one in a cupboard. We'll just lock that issue away. And often what the world around us thinks we believe uh, about sex, they often have a pretty low opinion of Christian's attitude towards sex and sexuality. The writer and philosopher Bertrand Russell said the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. The worst feature of our faith, according to this man, was our attitude towards 
sex. And historically, that has often been true. That often the way that Christians have thought or taught others about sex and sexuality has left lots of people feeling shame, feeling a sense of oppression, feeling a sense of hurt, or perhaps thinking, well, we just need to just not, let's just lock all those issues away. Let's just bury them. The church doesn't have anything helpful to say about those things. And even today, our, our ethic, what we believe about sex and sexuality is often seen in the world around us as either incomprehensible, not understandable, uh, or to some people offensive, even dangerous. People are scared and think what we believe is threatening, evil even perhaps. But actually, what if our Christian attitude towards sex wasn't the worst feature of our faith, but was perhaps one of the best elements, perhaps the best element of our faith? What if the Christian teaching about sex and sexuality is actually the best news, is good news for us? And I firmly believe it is. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at four points which are going to help us work through this. And uh, three of those points begin with, with an H, the letter H. And I tried to get the fourth one to begin with an H, but uh, probably would involve a little bit of heresy, which heresy itself is an H, so that might have worked. But anyway... You didn't need to know any of that. So the first point is that the Christian attitude towards sex, what Christians believe about sex, is it's honest about the nature and power of sex. So first of all, it's honest. What we believe about sex is honest. Because in this passage, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to this ancient church in Thessalonica, which was a city much like our city here, Amsterdam, a city where there was lots of differing viewpoints, lots of people living uh, with all sorts of different expressions of life, sometimes in a very immoral, harmful, dangerous way, particularly when it came to sex. And Paul wants to warn the church here, these new believers, this new church that he started just a few months before. He gives them this warning, and he uses very strong, absolute, clear language he tells them to abstain from sexual immorality. He tells them that they need to learn to control their bodies. That's very clear language. He's not messing around. And elsewhere, we see other writers in the New Testament use equally clear language. Uh, in 1 Peter, Peter tells us that the, these passions of lust wage war against our souls. James writes in one of his, in his letter that, that our passions are, are at war against us. And then let me read what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard what it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better than you lose one of your members than your whole body will be thrown into hell. 
It's pretty, pretty strong language that Jesus, not just the Apostle Paul or Peter or James, but Jesus himself uses with us. Strong language. And is that because the Bible teaches that sex is bad? No, it doesn't. Let me be very clear on that. It doesn't say that at all. The Bible uses wonderful, uh, positive language when it comes to sex. Sex was God's creation, his gift to us. The Bible itself, this book is, in some ways you could describe it as a, a romance, a letter of love that God's written to his people within which he talks in very intimate, tender almost erotic language of how he loves us, but also how we should love one another. The Bible has a very positive view and isn't afraid of using language that we might think is a bit risky. Sex is God's creation. And that's what the Bible teaches us. It's a, a good, positive, wonderful thing. And Christianity recognizes that sex is God's gift to us is a good thing. But we also recognize that sex is a powerful thing. I remember uh, being at school as a teenager, and one of my teachers uh, in a science class uh, uh, asked everybody in the class to lay down on the table and just kind of look up at the ceiling as we were all lying with our heads on the table he lit this science explosion and this ball of fire just lit across the whole ceiling. And it was very exciting and dramatic. But he was able to do that because he was a science teacher. He knew how to use the chemicals or whatever it was that he was playing with to make that explosion happen. But as a teenage boy, I love nothing more than playing with fire. And my friends would go out and buy matches and do stupid things that we shouldn't have done. And we learned very quickly that fire is both an exciting, dramatic thing, but is a dangerous thing. In your household, you might have a fireplace where fire will warm and heat the whole house. But take the fire out of the fireplace, and you suddenly have a very destructive power that can burn down the house. And sex is very much the same. When used in its appropriate context, of Christian marriage, it brings life and warmth, but you release it out into the uh, outside of that safe place, and it's a powerful, destructive thing. And sex has become so powerful in the world around us that it's almost become like a like a god, like a god. Even in our city, sex has that kind of power. And when something controls you, when something governs your behavior, when something dictates your mood and how you feel, you have to question, has this become a, a God in my life? When something defines your identity, defines even how you describe yourself, when it becomes the central component of your life around which everything else hinges, then whatever it is, that thing has become a God to you. And that's so often what's happened in our society, that sex has become not just something that people do, but it's become part of their identity. People define themselves based on their sexuality, and that can be a dangerous thing. For many people, 
They believe that sex is somehow their path to freedom. The feminist from about 100 years ago, Margaret Sanger, said that sexual liberation is the only method to finding inner peace and security and beauty. That kind of language, that kind of thinking has infiltrated into the world around us. And that's what people believe now. That if I want to take control of my life, if I want to be free, if I want to have peace, then I need to have a, an active, vibrant sex life to be able to achieve all of those things. Because it's become a God to us. Something that controls us, that dictates to us. Something that we have to have, otherwise we don't feel fulfilled and satisfied. And what's happened in the world around us that I think society recognizes still that sex is a powerful thing, but somehow we still believe that we have control of it, that we can control all these urges and passions. I think that may be a bit naive. I think we've misunderstood how dangerous it is when you take that fire out of the fireplace. And you might say to me, but surely shouldn't I just be true to myself? That's the language we use all, all the time on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, even around the city on advertising boards. The language we use all the time, particularly when it comes to sexuality, is I just need to be true to myself. And that's seen as a wonderful, positive virtue. And yes, you should be true to yourself. But you're not defined by your sexuality. You're not. You need to live in harmony with the true identity that you find in Jesus Christ. That's where your true identity really lies. That's the thing that will define you and shape you and genuinely is life-giving, really will bring you security, peace, beauty, harmony into your life. Identity isn't something that you discover internally. It's not. It's something you discover in following Jesus Christ when you finally discover who you really are, what you're really supposed to be. So firstly, the Christian view of sex is honest about the nature and the power of sex. Also, the Christian viewpoint on sex is safe, honoring, and faithful. See, because just as the world uh, and around us, we see that sex is a powerful thing, has become like a, a god to many people. Often, the world around us also treats sex as appetite. It's an urge that has to be satisfied. A bit like hunger, we, we must eat to fill this hole inside of us. And what happens is people binge eat on sex and sexuality, we just kind of throw ourselves lustfully into it, which isn't any different from the world that Paul is speaking into when he talks about the people in the city of Thessalonica and how they have this passion of lust which controls them. The Greco-Roman world that Paul's speaking into was a horribly unfaithful world where men in particular 
would have a wife but would happily have several other sexual partners, would happily uh, uh, make sure their lusts were fulfilled in any way that they needed. They were driven by their appetite. But what happens is when you begin to think of sex like that, an appetite that needs to be satisfied, an urge that has to be met, it will begin to dehumanize people. Because that kind of appetite thinking is very selfish. And you'll begin to treat people just as objects to meet your need. And you'll end up hurting people. You'll end up hurting people around you, people that you love. Even if it's not you're committing sexual acts against them or with them, but you'll find that that appetite for sex will leave you, it will begin to close you off. The shame and the guilt that will flow out of that will mean you'll begin to put walls up around you. You won't want people to know what you're truly really like. Not only does it dehumanize other people, it will dehumanize you because you begin to treat yourself as an animal. And we're not animals. We're spiritual, emotional psychological beings and what you do with your body will affect your soul that's why Peter warns us that the passions of lust which wage war against not our body but they wage war against your soul if you give yourself over to this appetite again and again and again you'll begin to do violence to your soul begin to damage even how you think about yourself, how you think about other people. You'll diminish your self-worth, your dignity, your honor, your holiness before a holy God. See, because we're not animals, the most fundamental thing that we believe about humanity is that we're made in the image of God. That's what the Bible teaches. We're made in his image. And we're supposed to live out in the world around us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We're supposed to live out what it is to be made in his image. That means we live out the, the character of God to the people around us. And Christian sex is very much the same. It's supposed to reflect the gospel, reflect Jesus' love for us. And how God loves us is what the Bible describes as a, as a covenant love. That God's made a promise to love his people, this commitment to love his people no matter what, which is the same promise you make when you get married to someone. You make a covenant, an agreement with them that you will love them through thick and thin, through whatever life is gonna bring you. And if you're married and you're watching this, you'll know that's true. That in married life, you'll have ups and downs, challenges, moments of heartache and pain. But with God's grace helping us, we stand with, we keep on loving one another because we've made a covenant with one another because we're reflecting God's love. That's what marriage is. It's a reflection of how God loves his people to the world around us. It's supposed to shine the gospel of Jesus Christ out around us. And when the Bible talks about sex within Christian marriage, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
It tells us that we're called to give our bodies to each other in our marriage relationship, that our bodies no longer belong to us, that we serve each other with our bodies. What's mine is yours. See, Christian sex is, doesn't come with an appetite attached. It's unselfish. It seeks to love and serve one another. And that's supposed to be done in a marriage relationship of faithfulness and fruitfulness. A safe, honoring place for us to work out to be sexual beings together in this safe fireplace that God's created for his people. And we have to be careful that, that we don't slip into hypocrisy here. Paul writes really clearly, he says, no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter. And marriage isn't an excuse for abuse, but a place for mutual self-giving love, where we treat each other with holiness and honor and respect. Where we love for one another, where we wait for one another, where we patiently work out all areas of life, but particularly our sex lives, we patiently work out together. Not just giving ourselves over to appetite, but honoring, respecting one another. Which brings us on to our next point, that the Christian view of sex is that it's a holy thing. Paul writes here and says that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. See, this is an, an important issue. And around us in the city, in the world around us right now, we see people are passionate about this issue. Because people, I think, are aware of the sanctity, the preciousness of human life, and how sex brings so much destruction and pain. That's been a talking point over the last few years, which is a wonderful, it's a good thing. It's good that people are talking about it. And people are passionate about not just the holiness that they see, they might not use that sort of language, but people are also passionate, passionate about justice. That people who sin, who hurt others in this area, should be held to account for what they've done. And God's He's even more passionate about it than we are. He says here that he is an avenger in all these things. Psalm 94 says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. He's a holy God. He will do justice. He will punish sin. That's what the Bible teaches us might be uncomfortable for you to hear, but it's what the Bible tells us. And hopefully that is comfortable for some of you to hear. If you've been hurt by this issue, you feel broken, abused even. You have a God who cares for you passionately and he will bring about justice for you. And you might also be watching this, I think, I'm sure many people are, and maybe even feeling a sense of failure. But we know that God's a holy God, that God loves justice, but aware of the compromise in our lives. 
or of how so easily we slip into sinful wrong thinking in, on this matter. Or we look back on our past and see so many flaws and mistakes, maybe even in the last week or the last few days. And the Bible says we do have an adversary. It talks in 1 Peter 5 that we have this adversary, the devil, who prowls around us like a lion looking for someone to devour. This is mortal combat. And the devil doesn't just want to hurt you. He wants your soul. And you might be scared thinking, what does that mean? Can I, as a follower of Jesus, does that mean I can lose my salvation? Well, no, we don't believe that. We have a wonderful assurance of our salvation. That vengeance has taken place already. That Jesus Christ took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can know that. That he's taken the punishment that we deserve upon himself. And if you've been abused or hurt in any way, you can know that not only will justice take place, people will be held to account, but also that Jesus has, he's not just a God of vengeance, but he bore that vengeance upon himself. That should give you great hope and relief. But this faith that justifies us, that makes us right with God, will also sanctify us. Will also, as we looked at, as Wilson talked about last week, that this, this sanctification is the will of God for you. See, God isn't... It, we, this sex is like a war that wages against our soul. But God is not against you because of your sin. He's for you and he's against your sin. Does that make sense? It can be so easy to read some of these warnings and feel like God is wanting to pour down his wrath upon you. But he's not. He's on your side. And he's giving you the strength and power to to fight against these passions that can sometimes feel overwhelming. And the issue for us is that we resolve to fight. Not that we succeed flawlessly, because we'll all fail in so many different ways. But make a, a resolution, a promise in your heart, and say, God, I, I know that I'm going to fail. I know I'll slip up from time to time. Maybe you'll slip up, you feel like it feels like a lot of the time, but I'm going to resolve to fight with your grace and know that you give me the power to overcome. And what happens is that God will flood you with his power, that he'll grow within you his fruits of the spirit, like self-control to help you to work it out. And perhaps a really good practical step, if you're struggling with sexual sin anyway, is just to talk to someone. What I don't want to do today is let shame or guilt crush anybody today. I want the wonderful gospel to bring life and light into your heart. But a good step to, is to often just bring things into the light and just have a conversation with someone and say, look, I'm struggling with this area in your life. Can you pray with me? And they won't want to pour condemnation on you. They'll want to, uh, your brother or sister will want to stand with you 
and love you and pray with you and help you to find freedom in Christ. My fourth and final point today is that it's important we realize that sex is not the way to true fulfillment and intimacy. Jesus said to it in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, what happens when we give in to the lust that wage war against our soul, when we don't control our bodies, as Paul tells us to here, what we're doing is we, we limit our intimacy with God. We shut that down. We kind of lock that away. Partly because when we get filled with shame, we don't want to be with God. We feel like we're not worthy. So we run away from him. But yet God has given us, if you're a believer in Jesus, he's made you a temple of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with you right now as you're watching this. He's in you. And he wants you to have this most profoundly deep, beautiful, intimate relationship with the living God. And it might sound like everything I've been saying is basically that marriage is the answer, that everyone just needs to get married and then we'll all be fine. But the Bible teaches that marriage is a temporary thing, that it's not an eternal thing that we'll have forever, but a temporary thing for whilst we're here on earth. But it's a signpost that points to something greater, that the intimacy we have within marriage is just a hint of the intimacy that we'll one day have forever with God, but also you can experience here on earth now with God. See, sex is a powerful urge, but it is not fundamental to wholeness and flourishing. It's not. That's often what we believe around us, that if you haven't had sex, or you're not having a regular sex life, that somehow you're, you're less, somehow you're not complete. That isn't true. You can have wholeness, you can live a perfectly fulfilled life and be completely celibate. We know that because that's how Jesus lived. You can't say that Jesus somehow didn't have wholeness in his life, that didn't flourish in his life. See, rather, and you might ask, well, why, why do I have all these feelings then? If you're a single and you're watching this, you might think, why do I have all these feelings that I can't seem to control? Well, you see, these sexual longings that God's given you, he's given you, them to you because they're, a, they're like a homing instinct for the divine. They're little hints that God's calling you to deep intimacy with him. That he wants to know you in the most powerful, close way that you could ever imagine. And that his love for you will satisfy you more fully and more powerfully than anything else here on earth. So you find, all of us will find true happiness not in your sexual fortunes, but in Jesus Christ and how he fulfills all of us. 
I'm going to bring things to a close in a minute. I'm going to pray, and Joe's going to lead us in some songs of worship. We recognize that some of what I've said today might be hard to hear. Some of it might even be a bit confusing. Well, we'd encourage you to get in touch with us, talk with us. That book I recommended at the start will help many of you, I'm sure. But it's important you realize that this simple thrust of what we want to say to you every week here at Liberty Church, but particularly today, is follow Jesus. Pursue intimacy with him. That's where you'll find true happiness. And that's not just the starting place, but that's how all of us as Christians, however long we've been believers in Jesus, that's what all of us need to keep pursuing, intimacy with God. And if you feel in any way convicted today, if you're aware of sin, areas of compromise in your life, sometimes that can be very painful can feel very weighty on your soul. But sometimes God gives you those feelings because he wants to restore you. Because he wants to come and bring freedom and joy to your life. Maybe you've been sinned against and you're feeling the pain of it today. He wants to restore you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance that a bruised reed you will not crush, that you love us dearly and tenderly, that you don't wage war against us because of our sin, but instead you wage war against our sin on our behalf. We thank you that you're a God of justice, a holy God of vengeance, but Jesus, you've ultimately taken the wrath of God upon yourself that you bore the punishment for all our sexual sins for all the ways we've fallen short you took the price for us so that we might go free and we want to live as people of holiness with honour not because we are somehow trying to earn your favour but because we know that's the best way to live that what you've, the Bible teaches us about section, sexuality is a, is a better story, a better story of human flourishing, a better story of what it is to live out life and ultimately to live lives of intimacy with you. Pray right now for wherever we're watching this from that you'd flood us with your presence. Help us to know your intimacy and nearness today. Amen.